trouble, oh, trouble set me free. I have seen your face and it's too much, too much for me. Trouble, oh, trouble, can't you see? You're eating my heart away and there's nothing much left of me. From the studios of KPFK Los Angeles, Pacifica Radio, welcome to Poets Cafe. This is host Lois P. Jones, and our guest is Elena Karina Byrne. Elena's previous poetry books include The Flammable Bird, Zoo Press, and Mask, Tupelo Press. She is currently completing an essay collection, Voyeur Hour, Meditations on Poetry, Art, and Desire. A Pushcart Prize winner, her publications include Best American Poetry, Yale Review, Paris Review, Poetry, and The Kenyan Review, amongst others. A former regional director of the Poetry Society of America, Elena Karina Byrne is a poetry consultant for the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. She's also the Ruskin Art Club's literary programs director and one of the final judges for the Kate Kingsley Tufts Prize in Poetry. Welcome, Elena. Rilke, somewhere in the gallery. There I would have been bold to squander you. It's everything flinch of parts that I can find or angel from this squander shade, from winter's bare inherited space of one eye where they pretend proximity, where a vice enters into it, blood for blood, without any fixed abode or fog-blue barb of memory left in the belly of an infinite loneliness. Everything is gestation, bait and switch beauty born with all other errors, desire and longings. There, oh downfall force, the dark, the canvas. I recognized you in it, your grammarless face, as if absent from the hours. Nevertheless, there's this necessary irrepressible with the mirror's open birdcage, mind's closed fists, the will, and our necessary irrepressible need to feel that pomegranate stain on the skin or burnt violin in the ear. Something so permanent about you by not breaking. Mm. Beautiful and a gorgeous poem to start with. This comes from your collection called Squander, out now on Omnidon Books. And I ask you to start with this poem because, of course, I love Rilke. He's kind of our patron saint here in the Poets Cafe. And the epigraph, there I would have been bold to squander you. And I think about the whole idea, the concept of the book, in terms of squandering and how it's a kind of a springboard for the collection, really. Yeah, it's funny that this ended up being, in a way, the title poem. Really a lot to do with the artist's struggle with the self, with his art, a kind of ours argument, an argument with the muse. And a lot of the poems are directing an address toward a you, which is the other whether that be the self or a distant lover 
or, you know, making some sort of address. And that's that's an ongoing theme in a lot of my work. Yes. You've called this a concordance. I know there are fable, there's myth uh, also in the collection. But I love this idea of a concordance. It's just sort of you've integrated dialogue. There are lines here from Book of Hours and uh, Letters to a Young Poet. But you've extended the conversation and taken it outside of itself in a way. Yeah, if you see it on the page, there are tiny fragment samples, the way a rapper would would sample maybe Mm -hmm. little pieces of music. And I did this randomly as a kind of language courtship, a collaboration. And then I use that to show that language can engender fresh language. And for me, these were so much fun because the poems really wrote themselves. Right. And it was a way of also creating a kind of monologue, even though they were dialogues with the artist or the writer that was in the title. There's a line, there's many lines here. From winter's bare inherited space of one eye. I just love that. (laughs) And I was thinking when I was driving here, because I've been asking myself this question a lot. As a poet, I can read that line and I can get a resonance with it. Um, There is this idea that we're all one and there's unity in our humanity. But I wonder how deep that goes in terms of comprehension. And I was thinking about, like, what if there was, let's say, a farmer who's not very educated isn't familiar, doesn't have the kind of capacity you have for language. But he read this line, and he was able to perceive it. Would he feel it in the same way, do you think? I'm trying to see how does the poet perceive and how does the average person look at things. And, you know, poet's duty or a passion is to translate what can't be translated. So would that farmer feel that? Can he experience it without being able to articulate it? And I I hope that's true. Well, I think language is an act of translation, Mm -hmm. naturally. And I think that we forget even memory comes to us like a hockney set of Polaroids. And at least for me, they come in images. Yeah. And so I'm constantly translating that. And of course, this is very dense if you think about, if you parse it into pieces. But, you know, winter and bareness often go together anyway. So that's something that I think a farmer could immediately identify. Now, as an inherited space of one eye, I think that would give him pause and he would have to think about that. And and again, maybe the one eye being something that's being reduced in winter, you know, it's like sort of the way exactly. that, that a branch is suddenly reduced from all its leaves. I, I think about, about it that way. And about our experience of, um, you know, I also think of Wallace Stevens, um, some of his beautiful poems about winter and one must have a mind of winter. Um, mm, yeah, you know, exactly. And, and uh, it's really a mixing of senses, and it's something that children do naturally. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I you know I try to go back to that original sensory overload, if you want. Uh, yes, and and how it builds on itself because I and I saw that one eye. I thought of Picasso mm. in the Minotaur. Huh. 
<laughs> you know, and this sort of myopic view that winter could have, you know, because it's so like the whiteness. You just get lost in that blanket oh, of I it. I appreciate that. Oh, um, I hadn't thought of that. But yeah. see, and that's that's what you you want each reader to bring something to the picture, to the painting. Well, what you do with language is is amazing, and rich. And maybe we could even read that uh, first poem in the book, language. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and again, these um, these fables are word origins, or what I call equations. They're sort of counterfactual equations. My and then I kind of bring in a little of sometimes my own mythology, but this was one of the earlier poems. And I, I would take a lot of research and then mix it up and, and uh, sort of try to make some my own sense out of it. Because water, fire, because food, because our yes was in Provencal, because our hunger once ate in a feast of lanterns, light caught in the mouth. Babel, traitors and navigators, slang bearings, verb a name, oh, uneasiness origin. Anyone's God confounded and does in language cage, its fallen bird's orange feathers. Finding Persian that Eve spoke to Adam, gender on its knees for the impolite flourishing end sentence in Japanese, how you won't find a simple yes or no there. Go in argument back in history, to hurry in obscene, to flower crush with Shakespeare who fleshed us barefaced and lonely. I don't believe in the hour past eternity, gaps in conversation, knowing that Keats' willful choir of gnats still darkens our throats, or how tongue of the Philippines, Ilocano, finds three words for this, invisible objects, a fourth for those out of view, Fifth, for the ones that no longer exist, is a yes. So shut, yes, your trap. Time, woe, bite of an asp. Language so human keeps us civilized, common. Your now anatomy proverbial ashes in a garden. Your Darwin's fire beetle still pinned burning to black paper. Hold on, hold your tongue. The prisoner dies and wakes again, dies, electric chairs, blue flame, playing at the base of his spine. Mm. This is host Lois P. Jones on Poets Cafe on KPFK. And if you've just tuned in, we're with our wonderful guest, Elena Karina Byrne, talking about her gorgeous book, Squander, out now on Omni Dawn Books. And this feels like a kind of an ars poetica for me in a way. I know you may not have intended it. There's always the intention of the artist. And then there's what we get. And, you know, you've described it in a different way. But because you've called it language, and I sort of went in that direction, knowing how in your work in and in your past books, which I have, there's this excavational quality and how you juxtapose these images that are like batteries, you know, and they work against each other and create these very unusual dimensions. I think they go outside of normal dimensions in a way that nobody's doing. Oh, well, I appreciate that. You know, this for me, you could think of it as a kind of a list mm-hmm. of, as I said, information and that's that's speaking to itself and, and speaking to us. And it's also about, you know, Roland Barthes said language is a skin. And mm-hmm. I believe that language occupies us and we inhabit language. And But there are other languages, 
for example, as I said, the Philippines, where they have very unique qualities. They had many languages for things that are right here, things over there, things that are, you know, going away. And mm-hmm. and I love things like that. I'm I'm forever fascinated in those differences in 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 languages. And of course, Shakespeare invented over three thousand words and phrases mm-hmm. that we still use today. Right. So whenever I teach younger students, I always tell them, and they say, "Oh, I hate Shakespeare." And I said, "No, you don't. You're you're using them all the time." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but he invented the words barefaced and lonely. Oh, um, I didn't. And obscene and hurry. Really, and hint and gust and yeah, it's oh, just that's amazing. Fantastic. But it's also you know the fact that we think that language makes us civilized, and of course, we're not so civilized. We do things like we put people in electric chairs and yeah. Um, so that was kind of my point there, and um, it had a very elemental feel to me I don't know something about because our yes was in Provencal because our hunger once ate in a feast of lanterns wow I'm there (laughs) you know these are beginnings somewhere and uh, they just uh, took me on this gorgeous trajectory of language I also like this idea that there is this sort of ambiguity that you like to play with a lot the yes and the no as you've described in language And interestingly, in Japanese also, you're drawn to Asian prints, and I think you you used to have dreams about... I uh, did. Geisha or I did. I dreamt when I was a child for some reason over and over, maybe because we had Japanese prints, but I dreamt that I was a geisha. And, and this one particular dream over and over was repeating that I was a geisha on a train and someone was wrapping an obi around me and I saw soldiers out on the hills mm. uh, dressed in cloth uniforms. It's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, and then when I hear something like that from you, then suddenly I start seeing all these resonances, you know, looking at you. I mean, you're a very beautiful woman, but just feeling that uh, sense of elegance uh, and mystery that sometimes you can find uh, within the culture. It's interesting, too. I think we need to investigate things about ourselves as artists throughout our lives, and that that never ends. I mean, yes. you know, as an artist, you're investigating subjects over mm. and over, and you're trying to not conquer them, but you're trying to solve things, whether it's language or whether it's, you know, subject matters, and this is something that reoccurs. So, Yes, um, and you've started a new wonderful series of sonnets, uh, which is a different direction for you, and there's one called um, Almost Harunobu. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could explore that one a little bit. You sure. want to talk about it. Yeah. Almost Haranobu. That court gives rank for autumn and winter. After my milk bath in front of a mosquito's net, musical motif, when the advent end of the 17th century pulls back the bow, when you first costume, when you come home story-making, Black wings of hair, banashi bone pins. Women come now servant to the Tama River, washing courtesan brocade, multicolored on a screen, its new lovers kneeling. I too turn cinnabar red by hand paint, vertical to horizontal, lost memory sheets showing months. What pattern singing from this color page reaches you in secret? No one sees ahead. Eyes, half-closed, not looking up when walking. Butterfly halo above trees. Kimono sleeves open. 
my tiny hands down a carried landscape and beneath the obi fold clit sex knot hidden like a dinner bell underwater like the impermanence of hello or farewell like violence rhythmed in the mind after the war hmm. very powerful harunobu was a uh was an artist made yes. wood woodblock prints. Japanese woodblock print artist mm-hmm. um, who was the first to introduce full color around 1765. He was considered an innovator. He was born during the Edo period, and yeah, he was important at the time. Mm. So this series is something new for you. You said you had kind of a reflection about your father looking at the idea of narrative work versus clarity. I love your more oblique work. I love to excavate it. I love to, you know, as I mentioned, meditate on a line and go where I want. But I understand, you know, your desire. Trying something new. I think as all artists, um, my father was a very famous art teacher, and he said, you know, if you're, if you're very comfortable with something, um, you should try on something that makes you uncomfortable. Try mm-hmm. something new. And that's just what I've been doing, trying something a little more narrative, something that, um, in, not in the, particularly in this poem, but in a lot of these um, art ecrassic pieces, I am adding things about real life, mm-hmm. which I'm also not always comfortable with, and I'm, I'm trying that on. I'm trying with chance and paradox, though, a little bit, which is, I suppose, not new, but it's helping me with working out the, the idea of wayward logic, but, but with a clear sort of vision. Sure. And having really a lot of fun with it. And I'm also paying homage to my art upbringing. Yes. Tremendous art upbringing. And you're also, in addition to being a poet and a teacher, you are an artist as well. I, you know, I don't know if I can claim that title. I try to be, you know, painting is probably last on my list. But when I do do it, it's it's like an incredible meditation for Mm -hmm. me. And didn't you just take a class, you said? Yeah. Ah, um, Yes. This wonderful glass artist, right? Yes. Takizawa? Yes. Kazuki Takizawa, an amazing glass blowing artist who just really astonished me. And he was such a beautiful person and his work is stunning and a testimony to also some of his personal struggles with being bipolar but something that he does to to help other people with mental health issues and really incredible did um, you want me to read that poem? yeah sure i <laughs> these, do these, this is but it a, is a nice for you <laughs> nice it's somehow going in that direction <laughs> but i love the idea that he talks about the glass being the vessel, like as a human. Like the body. Yeah, like the body. No, it's incredible. And um, the Sembarzuru are the thousand cranes that in Japanese culture is considered mystical and holy creatures and um, good luck. So brain in the vessel shell of the body begin in this fine engine metronome breath between breath. Stay intact. Tell me my color today and those I left light behind in childhood on shore. They were made of mother's broken glass, now tiny inedible grains of sand, now live shells carrying other bodies out to sea to a Pacific shelf downed by no sun. Out of silence you make language my own, a transparency I can hold up until the sky becomes too heavy 
or rain fills my mouth with its own gray need to sing. Fold me home. Carry me out of your kiln, cooling this blown shape, dawn shimmering in my sides. Because talk begins in heat in the body, as one passenger who never leaves the moving train, as the Sinbazuru cranes wings folding back to you in silence, circling the hour. I can only hear myself, hear the exhale wind between the long bird ribs of trees, so please show me what will not break in thought. Show me sight. I love this poem. It's so moving to Thank me. Thank you. Um, every line here, and you can, I can feel how you've moved through it and are having your own epiphanies <laughs> through the piece. As, so the reader gets the advantage of, you know, because talk begins in heat in the body. Wow. Um, just uh, this is a whole there is and, and and interestingly, it's glass. And so there is clarity in the poem. And in the vision and in the body of the piece. It's very moving to me. My my mother was bipolar. Mm, okay. And so um, when I found this out, it, it just... And my mother was an incredible artist. And we always went to the beach. And then, of course, you know, I think of... You know, they always talk about sand being, you know, bits of glass. And yes. all of this just came together with for me in a flood. Mm. Um so, and I'm going to take another class. Oh, good. I, I saw, I was tempted to take one, too. I went, I was like, oh, I think I might do that. It's uh, an amazing experience. I highly recommend it, and I highly recommend his looking up his work. Yes. I did see some of his Venetian-type pieces. Yeah. Oh, stunning. Oh, it, it's, yeah. yeah. Kazuki Yes. If you just tuned in, we're in the Poets Cafe with our wonderful guest, Elena Karina Byrne. And we've been talking about her wonderful book, Squander, out on Omni Dawn Books and her latest um, foray into these beautiful sonnets of clarity and meaning. And would you like us to enter into another one. We have just a few minutes left. Sure. So I'm going to give you a choice. There's so many interesting places to go. We have uh, Louise Bourgeois' father. We have Lorna Simpson. Um, I think I'll I'll do the Lorna Simpson just because it's it's a sign of the times. Yeah. And, you know, with uh, forgive me for getting political, but with. Uh, Trump's we won't no need to forgive you. You're on KPFK. <laughs> I'm going to say with Trump's incredible aggressive ignorance and and the just kind of the 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 fresh uprising uh, racism that's going on in our country. This was an important one for me, and I I love Lorna Simpson's work. And um, there there's a couple of lines in here that are actually titles of her work. It's called Sex Attacks and Wishbones, Lorna Simpson. Instead. The head is turned away, obscured. The head is turned on by a bonfire of color flowers rising from the top of the head like memory from hair's bird auction knitted between dusk and dawn. Instead, one eye's opened ashtray are both obscured, follow in the pattern filigree knit dark. Language on the skin that won't take no for an answer, won't wear you out, won't stick the chicken wishbone in the throat before sleeping. 
but you will find an error in these repetitions in all circles as you fall. Feel your body parts. Feel the ground sliding from under you like the very last part of your body wishing itself back and away, wishing its last text and photo back into our history's bonfire smelling like burnt hair instead of chip cookies and milk. Instead, your body is viewed from behind, forever breaking an invisible silken butterfly on the collarbones only wheel. Mm, an end line. Wow, wow, wow. So powerful. And this is a different approach uh, in your ekphrastic work, too. The looking from the outside. I know often the work is a jumping off point, and here we're observing something uh, coming in as if from a higher place and coming into the object. Yeah, this refers to a lot of her work. Her photographs are things like collarbones, and, um, you know, there's a lot of referencing here. And, uh, and you know, this is like a lot of terrible relevance. And the, and, the, and beautiful photographs of that she used, kind of collage of women's hair. Yes. Obviously very significant that. in an African-American. Um, and the wigs is conformity, you know, that, that type of thing. And, you know, um, the breaking of the butterfly refers to Alexander Pope's, um, that form of torture where they tied people to uh, Catherine's wheel and, ah. uh, and they would break the bones with an iron bar. So mm. uh, there are certain things that just, you know, uh, have echoes, Yes, unfortunately. But, you know, what I do with a, a lot of my work when I do research is I adopt and adapt and, you know, I sort of, like an actor, I become part of the experience. And I, f I feel it so profoundly. And so, I, you know, that enables me to kind of enter inside of the subject. And then, and then I, I row or I run with it. Yes, run. Well, we hate to run <laughs> because that means there's less time to talk to you. But it's been so great to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you, you for coming. I really appreciate it. This is host Lois P. Jones, and our guest has been Elena Karina Byrne. Thanks to our producer, Marlena Bond. Look for us on the Poets Cafe fan page on Facebook. You've been listening to Poets Cafe on Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond. I have paid my debt. Now won't you leave me in my misery? Trouble, trouble, please be kind I don't want no fight And I haven't got a lot of 